Sounds like it. Good. Isaiah 40. Has anyone had the privilege to sing maybe the Hallelujah Chorus? Anybody? Okay. We did that one time in high school. Our high school choir did the Hallelujah Chorus for a state competition. And uh, I don't know if I've ever been so out of breath in all my life as a teenager (laughs) trying to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Anybody been a part of Handel's Messiah? And okay, okay, okay. Wow, did the whole the whole thing? Wow, because it's over like two hours long, isn't it? Okay, if you go out on YouTube and you want to watch, there are some very good um, renditions of Handel's Messiah. And it is, in, in some of them, two and a half hours long, but it is incredible. Uh, it's one of the most uh, incredible uh, pieces of music that's ever been written. I understand that Handel secluded himself in his house for, I forget how many weeks, writing the music, but it was actually someone else who did the words, and they are entirely from Scripture, and the words to Handel's Messiah is a scriptural compilation that obviously is uh, spoken prophetically regarding Jesus Christ. And so I forget the name of the, the man who compiled the scripture, who wrote the lyrics, but uh, Handel, of course, is given the credit because he wrote, he wrote the music. But it is incredible uh, work of, of music. And Isaiah 40 is probably recognized for the end of the chapter, but also at the very beginning of the chapter. If you've ever heard part of Handel's Messiah, there is a quote directly from Isaiah 40. And verses 1 through 5 in particular are used. And then we know the end of chapter 40, which we won't look at today. Um, In the, the great verse at the end of the chapter, They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. But verse 1 of Isaiah 40, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comforts. We are so thankful for God's comfort, for his consolation. This is a messianic prophecy that is the beginning of a transition in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is sometimes referred to as a a mini Bible, 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. There is a very similar theme in the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah to the Old Testament. And then Isaiah 40 begins the transition And we see a change in the theme. God is a God of judgment and justice. But God is also a God of salvation and comfort and compassion and consolation. And we are imbalanced when we are not giving time and effort in teaching both. And we know that in today's therapeutic age, what is emphasized? It's all about the grace of God and the goodness of God and his long-suffering and his forbearance and his compassion and his consolation. And that, th- those are all good things. We, we don't say that's wrong, 
But many times God's justice and judgment are left out to the point that even a national pastor, well-recognized, says we don't need the Old Testament. The New Testament is unhitched from the New Testament's unhitched from the Old Testament. And now we see where he's at. He's unhitched the Word of God from, well, I don't want to get too carried away here, but now he has left that trailer way behind and he's out on some excursion of his own and denying clear teaching of the Word of God. But when he subverted the authority of the Word of God by saying the New Testament is unhitched from the Old Testament, then we knew he was heading down the wrong path. And he just continues on what is now a slippery slope that's been greased. Sad to say. But Isaiah 40 is a transitional chapter. And we see now this theme of God's compassion, God's comfort, salvation. It doesn't eliminate his justice and his judgment. There's even references in Isaiah 40 to the judgment of God and warning about, yes, there is salvation, there is comfort, there is consolation, and so desperately we need that. But there's also warning about, yes, there will be that day when Israel returns from their exile, they'll return from their captivity, but watch out, don't go back into the same sins that caused you to be in this exile, in this captivity in the first place. So we see in Isaiah 40 this transition, and we see now restoration and deliverance, salvation, Comfort, consolation being the primary themes in these last 27 chapters. We have to remember that Isaiah wrote, he wrote these chapters 100 years before Babylon even conquered the land of Judah. He's writing this 100 years before. We know that Isaiah had ministry with which king in particular who was uh, in the, when Israel, when Judah was invaded by the Assyrians, who was the king that Isaiah ministered with? Rural? Hezekiah. And there are specific chapters in the book of Isaiah that deal with Hezekiah and when the Assyrians came and threatened Judah and Hezekiah laid out the letter from Sennacherib and prayed before the Lord and God delivered them and Isaiah was a, uh, an instrumental part of that ministry during that time. But he's writing 100 years before Babylon conquers Judah. So in this section here, we're going to see Israel, Judah, uh, coming or being warned of a coming captivity. And yet there is a mention of her restoration. How many years after the captivity did Israel, did the Jews, be allowed to return to their land? How many years were they in captivity? 70, yes, 70. And there's even mention of 70 Sabbaths. In other words, they had neglected the Sabbath years. And so Jeremiah mentions the 70 years, and there's a reference to their violation of the Sabbath years 70 times. Interesting. I know there were a lot of other things, immorality and idolatry and the wickedness of the land, but in I believe it's in Jeremiah that's, the reference to the 70 Sabbaths, and that being a violation as well. So we're in this second half of the book of Isaiah, the second section, and we will see in this opening, whoops, I need to, well, hopefully it'll, there we go. We will see the might and magnificence of the Messiah. 
Now, I just realized the USB plug that I had in there was not the right one. There we go. That should... It helps if you plug it in, doesn't it? You can have all the techno savvy that you want, but if you don't plug it in, it's not going to work. Might and magnificence of the Messiah. So we're going to see, first of all, the magnificent comforter. The magnificent comforter. So we begin here as... We just read, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. We know that this is a reference to the Messiah for four reasons. We know that, first of all, the Messiah is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead. And of course, all members of the Trinity share the same attributes. One God, three persons. The Trinity is not three gods, but one person, one, or excuse me, one essence, one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Messiah is clearly identified in this passage as God. So when the Jews reject Jesus Christ, they have to reinterpret, misinterpret Isaiah 40 like they do the other Messianic prophecies, some of which we've looked at, and of course Isaiah 53. And they have to reinterpret or misinterpret in order to try to read out of those passages the prophecies regarding the Messiah. So the Messiah is God. And then in verse 3, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway, for our God. We know that this is applied to Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Matthew 3 and verse 3, Mark 1 and verse 3, and Luke 3 and verse number 4. So we know that John the Baptist was the forerunner who heralded the coming of the Messiah, who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Well, who is the way of the Lord, who is going to be doing the work of God, who's going to be making straight in the desert a highway for our God. That is Jesus Christ. So this is a reference applied by the New Testament. I love the unity of Scripture. I love the way that the New Testament will interpret the Old Testament or explain the Old Testament because they're the same author, God. And so there's incredible unity and we see the way that the New Testament writers identify, even from this passage, that this is a Messianic reference. We also can recognize in verse 11 the shepherd figure. Verse 11 of Isaiah 40. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Aren't those tender, verse, isn't that a t- aren't those tender phrases, isn't that a tender verse? That though the shepherd has to have a rod and a staff because shepherd, excuse me, sheep do dumb things, get themselves in trouble, find themselves in predicaments. Yeah, sheep are stupid. <laughs> I think I heard somebody say. They're dumb animals. We're compared to sheep because we're sinners. We do dumb, stupid things, sinful things. Sin makes us dumb. Sin makes us stupid. Can I just come right out and say that? Sin just makes us do dumb things. It makes us stupid. 
Why does Proverbs refer to the fool as a fool? The simple one as a simple one. Because of sin and what it does. And uh, we're compared to sheep. But Jesus is the shepherd. The Messiah is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. We know is one of the I am uh, statements in the book of John. John 10 verses 11 through 18. And then we could even refer to 1 Peter 5 and verse number 4. The shepherd and bishop of our souls. A shepherd does have to punish and rescue and has to deal with all of the things that sheep do that are dumb and stupid. But there's a tenderness in verse number 11 of the shepherd providing comfort, of providing a place of refuge. Where did the sheep go at night? The shepherd would call out. The shepherd, the sheep, know the shepherd's voice. They would come to the shelter. And if there was one that was lost, what would the shepherd do? He'd go and find. Even if there were 99 that were safe, he'd go and find the one that was lost. I know there's a reference, and I know there's an application to the one that's unsaved. But there's also an application of the 99 being saved and the hundred, the hundredth also being a believer who is out of sorts and not listening to the shepherd. So there's, I know, a primary application of the lost and the one being found, but there is an application to even the shepherd caring for his own, the sheep, as a saved individual. God's not going to leave us alone. We need to be thankful for that. If we're truly a child of God, if we're one of his sheep, he's going to come after us. He's going to deal with us. I'm thankful for that. I'm so thankful when I, because my heart is prone to wander. And I, I know the temptations of my own heart. I know the besetting sins of my own flesh. Though I was saved as a, as a, as a child, I'm thankful for that. I never want to take that for granted. Never want to look down upon that. But I think of what God saved me from. I think of so many times where I have been in a place, a uh, crossroads, There's a fork in the road, so to speak. And by the grace of God, kept me from going off some cliff and doing something stupid. And that flesh is still there. That temptation is still there. Let him who thinketh he stand to take heed lest he fall. But praise God for the good shepherd, our Savior, the Messiah. And for his refuge that brings the comfort and the consolation and hides us under the shadow of his wings. And holds us safe. And will even come and get us when we mess up. So then we also see a fourth reason that this passage applies to the Messiah. The chapter emphasizes the greatness of the Creator. Now, who is given credit for being the Creator? Is not God? Of course, God the Father. But is not Jesus Christ as well? And we know that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, so the Holy Spirit in the plural form of the pronoun, the we, in Genesis account, even speaks to the Trinity being involved. And we know that all three persons of the Godhead were involved in creation. But there's references, John 1 and verse number 3, that he is the creator the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. 
A reference as well to Jesus Christ being the creator and by him all things consist. Ephesians 3, 9 and then Hebrews 1, 2 and 3. So this is a Messianic passage referring to Jesus Christ and the very attribute of God as creator is given to the Messiah here in Isaiah 40. And we won't have time to look at the whole chapter. Some of these references are in the second half of the chapter, which we won't uh, deal with primarily today. So we see magnificent comforter. We see the Messianic prophecies that this is attributed to Jesus Christ and four reasons that we see that this applies to the Messiah. The Messiah is God. We see the phrase, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Jesus Christ does that preparing. We know that the forerunner, the herald, is John the Baptist. But it is Christ who prepares the way of the Lord, makes straight in the desert a highway for our God, exalts the valleys. Every mountain and hill be made low. Verse 4, the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. That is the work of the Messiah, God. The shepherd figure and then the attributing of creation to this Messiah, who of course is Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. So we see the promise of God's pardon, the promise of God's pardon. In Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2 that we've already read, we see God offering comfort to Judah. Now, they're referred to as my people. Have they ceased? Have the Jews ceased to be God's people? No. They're still God's people. One of the testimonies to the truth of Scripture is the fact that the Jews continue to exist. Humanly speaking, the Jews should not exist. There have been some groups, ethnic groups, civilizations that have ceased. I can think of what may be the Aztecs, um, maybe the Incas, I'm not sure all the different people groups, but there have been some people groups that have basically ceased. The Philistines, yeah, there's yeah, groups from the Canaanites from Canaan that are, are gone, yeah. So we see that many times it's the direct result of their imploding because of their wickedness, their debauchery, their lifestyle, their cultural sins. We know that the Jews obviously have their failures. Obviously they have sinned. They have fallen under God's judgment, but God's not done with them. There's a remnant that remains. They will be grafted back in, Romans 11. We know that in the tribulation period, there will be a turning as an entire nation. We know that there are Jews getting saved right now. We support a missionary, Craig Hartman, Shalom Ministries, who continue to minister with the gospel. Other ministries, I know, continue to reach the Jews. They are his people. They are his people. Now, can we not apply the, the truths of God's comfort and consolation of his salvation and redemption, can we not apply those truths to us as Gentiles? Sure, there are soteriological aspects that apply to even us as Gentiles. But there are specific promises and a specific relationship that God has with his people. Jesus was born a Jew. He lived as a Jew. He died as a Jew. They are still his people. Despite their sin, God has not forgotten them, even during the captivity, which at this time was still in the future. Was Hezekiah a bad king or a good king? He was a good king. 
There was a time of revival. The Jews, the, the, the southern kingdom, Judah, Benjamin, they experienced a measure of revival, of reformation, of sin being purged out of the land. But what did Hezekiah do toward the end of his reign? He was lifted up in pride. He called out to the Babylonians and he said, Hey, all you Babylonian wise men, all you rich and increased with goods, look at what I have. Remember? Hezekiah had some pride. And God said, I won't send judgment in your day, but it is coming. And Isaiah was one of the prophets who was proclaiming this message. He's writing 100 years before that Babylonian captivity. But he's pointing even further ahead to that return from the exile. And he is graciously remembering the covenant relationship that he had with Israel, and he still has to this day. Though, therefore, we can read in verse 1, comfort, and it's repeated. Why is it repeated? Because it's important, exactly, for emphasis. Do we ever repeat anything as parents? Do you ever have a coworker or employee? Do you ever have somebody that works for you? Do you ever have a student in your classroom? Do you ever have somebody underneath you that you have to constantly remind and repeat? You feel like putting a sign up? Maybe you've done this around your house. You've put a sign up <laughs> to remind them this is what you need to do before you leave your room or before you leave the house. But there's an emphasis. It's important. There's comfort from the Lord. Comfort ye, comfort ye. And it's literally, the word comfort there, literally says, or, or from its root word, refers to the heart. In other words, this is the heart of God. It is the heart of God. There's a sincerity and there is a compassion. There's a loving kindness. There's a goodness as God is holy. And though there is judgment and there is justice, there is a compassion. There is a goodness. It's from his heart that he is providing this comfort and delivering this message of consolation. So what was God's message of comfort to Israel? Well, there would be a disciplinary action, but there would eventually be a return from the exile. So we read there in verse 2, speak ye comfortably. Third time now we see that word comfort. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, this is 100 years before the Babylonian captivity. What, what is this a reference to? This is a reference to the return, the promise that they will be restored to the land. That after that 70 years, God would bring them back. They would have paid for their sins. There would have been the consequences of their sins. I cannot help but, again, make an analogy as a parent. Has it been hard for us at times as parents to discipline our children? To say, if you do this or that, if you mess up in this way, if you break these rules, if you are disobedient, if you do that again. Now, we, we were both for many years. I was, I was dad, the principal, as well as dad, the dad. And so we would sometimes talk to our kids. We, our poor kids, when they were in, at, at school and I was the principal and she was teaching full time, they couldn't go anywhere. They had no hope for getting away with anything. If they were in line, if they were in the timeout line in the gym at recess, 
We knew about it. I mean, I would, I would make my rounds through the hallways, and sure enough, there was one particular child that was on the timeout line quite regularly. But they all had their time. They all had their time. But we would, we would let them know, okay, if we see you on the timeout line for the second recess in the afternoon, there's going to be a little bit further. We always asked them, why were you on the timeout line? And then if they were on timeout line again, we would ask them, okay, what, what happened? You know, <laughs> then there would be those times where someone would show up at my door or I'd get that call and it would be one of my children and they had done something particularly bad. And so I kept a wooden spoon in my drawer. Now I had a toy drawer, but I also had a drawer with a wooden spoon, if you know what I mean. And Kelly kept one in her classroom. But they, they couldn't get away, in a sense, with anything. Now, we obviously are not omniscient and omnipresent, but there was a, hopefully, a holy fear, a reverential fear, as our kids were in school and in our home, where there, there could be a, a lowering of the boom. There could be a discipline, a consequence. But I hope and pray that there was always, and I've, I've tried and not always done it perfectly, but I've tried to also extend in that consequence, in that judgment, in that justice, a hope for mercy, for restoration. That my kids knew that even though there was going to be tears and weeping and gnashing of teeth for a little while, there was going to be a restoration. And there would be times where we would go in and we'd go back into the bedroom. And I mean, it had been tears. It had been a time of, it was rough. And we would go back in and we'd give them a big hug. And we would remind them, mom and dad still love you. We still care about you. This is not the end. This has not canceled out our love for you. And in a sense, can we not see the heart of God here in Isaiah 40? There is judgment. There is consequence. You keep on this road. There is going to be 70 years of exile, of captivity. But God still loves you. There is a hug in a sense and a comfort, a word of comfort, of consolation. Aren't we so thankful for that? As we have our times of difficulty and we mess up and we have our times of consequence, God still cares. Yes, Earl. Oh, yeah. Yes. John, what does Jesus do? He restores Peter in a very tender way. So this is God's message of comfort. And then in the promise of God's pardon, we also see a preparation for Christ's coming, a preparation for Christ's coming. So this brings us down to verse 3. We've read a couple of these verses already. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, we know that there's an application to John the Baptist being the voice, the preacher, 
who's proclaiming that the Lord is coming. He's the, uh, the forerunner in the New Testament. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Of course, who is the one that's going to prepare the way? Who's the one that's going to do verse 4? At the end of verse 3, I mean, and, and into verse 4. Preparing the way of the Lord, making straight in the desert a highway for our God, exalting the valleys, bringing down the mountain and the hills, the crooked being made straight, the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, verse 5, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Who is accomplishing that? That's the Messiah. That's Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, incarnate God. So the preparation for Christ's coming, the analogy the analogy is almost like the building of a road through a mountain or a mountainous area. Now, I think a lot of the highways down, I, I, I relate to our trips down to Greenville, to South Carolina with, with our kids or when I was in Bible college. And I-40, I you come out of Newport, Tennessee, and from Newport, Tennessee to Asheville, North Carolina, it is this and this. And there's some sections north of Knoxville, and then there's a little bit south of, of uh, Asheville. There's a, I don't know, 5% or 7% grade coming out of <laughs> Asheville or going down 25. You can just take your foot off the accelerator and coast for a while there. But I don't know, was it the Army Corps of Engineers that was involved in some of that? They had, to have, they had to have blasted rock because you drive along those mountain roads and there's, there's rock. I remember one, one year we heard when we were at college that I-40 was closed because there had been a rock slide. And I don't know how many weeks later we drove by on the way home and sure enough we could see where they had been putting up barriers and then they've sometimes got netting and fencing on the, the side of the, the mountain. But they had to have used like dynamite and blasted huge sectors, places where there's tunnels. That's the imagery. That's the illustration. There's mountain rocks, boulders that have to be blasted. This is impossible for man. This is a reference to the salvation of God that could only come by God's work. It can't be done ourselves. We can't do it. I know we have the Army Corps of Engineers and we have dynamite and all, the, but we've really not accomplished a whole lot. When you compare to what God has done, who from the very thought of his mind, the very word of his mouth created this universe, man is... <laughs> And really all we're taking is the gifts that God has given us in our minds and in our intellects and in our physical abilities to even invent out of what God has already created and to be creative with what God has already ordered and designed. We're really not that smart. We really aren't. And anything that we have is, is only from the Lord in the first place, who's the creator. But it's the idea of taking a mountain and a hill and making it Straight, making it level. The idea of taking a valley where you would go down, I don't know what to compare as far as valleys, but maybe you've been out west. Anybody been out west where there's the, the deep uh, valleys? It's that valley being made, uh, being raised up and made level where the mountains and the hills are brought down. And then the crooked places. Again, I think of Yosemite and driving 
through Yosemite National Park in California, <laughs> and those, those roads, and literally you'd go up, and there would be a tree and maybe a guardrail, and then it's down, down, down it goes, and you've been maybe places like that. And the crooked shall be made straight. The rough places where there is a rough road, it's made plain, it's smoothed out. And then verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So it's a prophetic reference to the Messiah, his first coming, but it's also a far fulfillment in the second coming when there will be every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's a dual reference here. So God showed both his providential power and his love and concern when he brought Judah back to their land. The road was impossible, and we could even reference it to salvation, that it's impossible with us. It's only possible with God. We don't save ourselves. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. The road was impossible until God intervened and made it happen. In specific application to the captivity, it wasn't until God, working in Cyrus's heart to make the decree that the Jews could go back. And I just, I love that. The fact that here's a king, Cyrus, and I, I can't help but think, has anybody ever wondered this, that part of what God was doing in preparing Cyrus to give that decree was the testimony of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, and then into Darius, the Mede. I don't know. I, I've, I've thought of that. Has anybody ever had any thought or done any study on that? Or I just wonder if Daniel didn't have a testimony. By the age, by the, by the time the Jews are returning, Daniel's probably either dead or he's too old to make the trip back. And people have sometimes asked, well, how come Daniel didn't return? Well, again, he may have been with the Lord by that time or... He was too old to make the travel, but I can't help but wonder if Daniel didn't have an influence that eventually, we know, it was, we know it was God, but I just can't help but think, when we live obedient, we can be the grace of God in a workplace, in a place of recreation, on a ball team. We can be the grace of God that people see. We can be that light that we talked about last week in the day spring and reflecting the light of God. And here we see... God working in the heart of the Lord, or excuse me, the heart of the king is in what? The hand of the Lord. Can God bring revival to America? Sure. Without getting into politics, we may have, can I just come right out and say it without getting tomatoes thrown at me? We may have two, can I say, not so great candidates for president on the ticket next year? Okay, we may have more, you know, we may have more respect for one over the other, of course, but we very well could have some pretty not so reputable candidates. Hank? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right, right, good, good point. Daniel might have been that voice in the back, yes, yeah, good point. Earl?
Right. Right. And he, he was bold enough to move the embassy to the capital, or I know Tel Aviv is recognized, but Jerusalem, the, what we have always known as the capital, he was bold enough to do that when other presidents only made the promise. Yes. Right. Oh, Jehu was a mess. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so what, what, what often happens? What often happens? A nation gets the leadership that they deserve. Now, there are times that God in his mercy will bring a Hezekiah, will, will bring a, a Josiah, and there will be a revival, there will be a reformation. But we often see the nation getting the kind of leader that they deserve. And I just hate to even say it, but what kind of leader do we deserve as a nation? When we are celebrating perversion, when we are in our halls of academia protesting in support of savage murderers, when we're massacring babies in the womb, when we are supporting a pornography industry by the billions of dollars, when we are afraid to even spank our children or discipline our children, and no wonder they want nothing to do with God and never even consider themselves a sinner, on and on we could go, right? At some point, God has to say enough is enough, and he has to bring his, ju his judgment, his, his justice. Yes? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, what, look at what the three, what was it, University of Penn, MIT, and Harvard? Look at, look at them. They cannot even, these are considered the most intellectual leadership of some of the greatest halls of institution in our land, and they can't even call evil what it is. Can't even speak out when there's a question about this being a form of violent, harmful, bullying, to the point of calling for the genocide of a group of people, and they won't even say that's wrong, that's evil. Yes? Good for her. Yeah. Yes. And she stepped down. Good. She at least somewhat acknowledges that she was wrong. Yeah. So we see the promise of God here in the preparation for Christ's coming. And then we'll just have to hustle here to the end. But we see the permanence of God's word in verses 6 through 8. In this passage, Isaiah contrasted man's, man's temporal, transient existence with God's eternal, enduring word. Verse 6, the voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So Isaiah is contrasting man's temporal, transient existence with God's eternal, enduring word. The Jews, who would 100 years from now be in exile, they could take great comfort in knowing 
that the Babylonian power, which eventually would be replaced by the Medes and the Persians, which eventually would be replaced by the Greeks and then the Romans, their power is only temporary. God's word is eternal. All of these prophecies would be fulfilled. The situation that the exiles would be in would seem virtually hopeless. They could never, they could never imagine maybe even becoming a nation again, but God's word about their return to the land couldn't be voided by Babylon or the Persian Empire or any other superpower of that time. And we look at 1948 when the nation of Israel became a nation once again. I know that there wasn't a specific fulfillment of a specific prophecy in 1948, but it was a general fulfillment of a general prophecy that Israel would return to their land in a, full, in a partial fulfillment of what will be a full fulfillment when the nation is gathered and turns to, to Christ in the tribulation period as a nation. So we see that they returned after the Babylonian exile. They returned in 1948. There will be another return, and they will eventually turn to, uh, to Christ in saving faith. How can we then apply that to us right now as Gentiles? How can we apply it right now? We have the promise that we have the confidence that God keeps his promises. What else? Yes. Grafted in, right. And that gives us a responsibility, doesn't it? Where once the Jews were the primary ambassadors of the gospel, that's now pretty much our responsibility, though there are obviously Jews doing it as well. The Gentiles, us as believers, as the church, have been given the primary responsibility of evangelizing the world. What else? What else is it? Let's go back to what Derek said about promises. Will there not be the rapture and the return of Christ? Will there not be a millennial kingdom and an eternal kingdom? Yes. Will, will, will there once again be paradise on earth? Yes. Will there be a new heaven and a new earth? Yes. We can take great hope. Just as the Jews were giving word, given words of comfort here. So we can also have the comfort and the promise and the hope of the second coming of Christ. We're, out of, we're pretty much out of time, but Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11 is the pronouncement of God's presence. And these verses here, O Zion, that bring us good tidings, down to verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand. His arms shall rule for him. Verse 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. As we read earlier, he shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. The pronouncement of God's presence. There's an announcement. There's a... There's good tidings. God is sovereign. They could take their eyes off of the dire circumstances that they were in, that they would face, that they would eventually uh, be looking in a land of captivity, in exile, looking at their circumstances and saying, what hope is there? Well, right here, there's words of hope. There's words of promise. And so... Isaiah may have assumed that the Messiah would establish his reign immediately after the Jews returned from captivity. There's some of that that even continued into the hearts and minds of the disciples 
when they were in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and they were thinking what was going to happen. They were missing something that had been prophesied in Isaiah 53 and other places that Christ would have to do what first? Die for the sins of mankind. What did Satan in the temptation in the wilderness, what was one of the temptations that he presented to Christ? He took him up, what, on the top of the temple? And he told him to look out, and what did he say? You can have the kingdom right now, right? You can have the earth right now. That would have been a false promise, a false fulfillment, and obviously it would have violated uh, Jesus Christ and his, his essence as the Holy Son of God, and we would have died and gone to eternal hell. Okay, But here we see Isaiah, you can see there's a hopefulness of a kingdom. The disciples with Jesus Christ are thinking kingdom. And they're talking, remember at one point, I'm going to be on the right hand. No, I'm going to be in the right hand. No, I'm going to be on the right hand. And they're arguing amongst each other. And then they were overlooking the fact that Christ was even telling them, I have to die first. There has to be an atonement for sins. All the sacrifices and all the symbolism that pointed to the cross they're thinking kingdom. You can see some of that here in Isaiah, but the point is that there will be that kingdom, but there had to be the payment for sin first by Christ on the cross. Any closing comments or questions? Yes, go ahead, Earl. You're at your third. You're at your limit. It's okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah, great point. Great point. They became fools, obviously, publicly. Yeah, good point. Thank you. All right, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your, your word, for these promises. Thank you for these prophecies. Uh, Lord, the fulfillment of uh, these prophecies in the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, that... His first coming that we celebrate this Christmas season, but Lord, in looking ahead to his second coming, to the rapture of the church, to the great resurrection day, and then, Lord, your kingdom and the fulfillment of these prophecies in their entirety. May Lord thank you for these truths. May we, Lord, live in hope of your coming, and having that hope, may we purify ourselves and live holy lives in anticipation and expectation of your coming again. Thank you for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. I pray you bless now the service to follow in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you so much for being here. We'll start the service in about 15 minutes.